Hi folks, Lee Packett from ICR here, and I am thrilled to welcome you to the first episode of a brand new podcast from the American Bankruptcy Institute. Welcome to Unordinary Course, where we unpack emerging trends and current events to figure out what it all means for the restructuring community and the clients we serve. Kicking off our first show, I'm happy to say we have Carol Dennison, partner at law firm Squire Patton Boggs, where she is also a member of the global board and serves as the firm's global projects partner. She has also done quite a lot of work in the bankruptcy and restructuring space over the years, and suffice to say, we're thrilled to have her join us from San Francisco. Carol, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for doing this. Never easy to go first. Oh, but thanks so much. I, I don't mind going first. <laughs> <laughs> Still, it takes bravery. I wanted to call it out. Um, so I wanted to riff off of an article I shared with you a couple of weeks back. Uh, this was in Barron's uh, back in August 2023. It's entitled The Manufacturing Boom's Hidden Costs by Reshma Kapadia. Uh, really interesting read. I, I strongly urge you listeners to go check it out online. Uh, and Carol, just wanted to start this off by covering some of the basics. This piece builds around the idea of a resurgent industrial policy in the United States. Again, starting with basics here, what is industrial policy? What do we mean when we use these words? Yeah, I think what, what we mean is is a set of government actions and strategies that are aimed at promoting development and growth of specific industries. Um, and, and those industries can cover a wide range of um, industries depending on what kind of challenges the government sees the country facing. Um, and as the article talks about, you know, supply chain is one. But anything that relates to defense is another that um, is 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 part of this focus. So it's it's a, a opportunity to encourage diversification um, of industries in the U.S. Where uh, historically we've been sending um, these industries uh, to countries other than the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to start off with the definitional because I I think this is you know, not a term that a lot of Americans are, are, are used to hearing. Um, you know, would you agree with that? And, and if so, why? Why is this something that's unfamiliar to the American public? I think that we just haven't called it out. I think that this industrial policy has been happening, uh, you know, all of our lives, but never in a, a never into the set of circumstances that we face now. Um, okay. And I think that because we're in the middle of a perfect storm with high inflation, uh, all the uncertainty in our economy and the global economy, volatility, interest rates, the banks, and, and just basically political risks that we're seeing out of Congress uh, to have, and I think you know most of our industrial policy is coming out of Congress and the White House, it's a attempt to address things that that really have to be addressed that the private sector has either been unable or unwilling to address and the reason that the private sector hasn't addressed it is mainly in terms of cost and profitability um, and i think you know we can use the chip manufacturing facilities as a good example uh, we're just now developing the first chip manufacturing plants in the U.S. because we've been dependent on China and others for our chips, which are essential for so many, so many things. So I think that because of the convergence of all the things that are happening, we're referring to it as industrial policy because it's a reaction to the times we live in. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting to note America spends a lot less on this than than other parts of the world. And you know, Reshma's article points out um, trying to spend something like 10x to 20x uh, what Americans do uh, it, 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 in in this area. Uh, but it does seem like we're playing catch up. I mean, just looking at um, the legislation that's been passed in recent memory, we have the Chips Act, the IIJ Act, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and of course the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, do you think, you know, projecting out over the next five to 10 years, there's going to be enough political willingness to make this new stance a fixture of American policy going forward? Will it live beyond the Biden administration? I would imagine both parties will have their respective ideas of which be prioritized under the umbrella term of American industrial policy. But one would think the platform appeals, the idea of a platform appeals to everyone. Yeah, I think that it may end up with a different label, but I think it's going to um, continue to exist in some form or fashion, namely because it's really part and parcel of our survival as a country. Uh, we can't continue to let other countries manufacture the control of those things that are essential for our day-to-day lives. So we have to create through um, legislation incentives and financing to address those problems that have been ignored. And infrastructure is one of the biggest ones. But the other side of the house here is encouraging industries to uh, produce and participate in areas that they haven't chosen to do so in the U.S. because it's been cheaper to do it elsewhere. So now that we know that the world has become, you know, uncertain and volatile in a way we never would have predicted five years ago, I think this is going to be an ongoing uh, effort uh, to set industrial policy that makes sense for the U.S. in terms of what we're going to, what we need as we move through the uncertainty of the macro economy. So, yeah, I think it is going to continue. So you have a really interesting, you know, uh, seat to kind of you view the rollout here. Now, not to put you on the spot, but what are some of the more interesting projects or, you know, on the ground impacts uh, some of these bills have had? I mean, what are some of the things that the average American can expect to see um, in their in their day to day lives as a result of this legislation? Well, I think that the average American may not see it, but I think that uh, uh, certainly the folks involved in the various business sectors are going to be aware of it. One will be hopefully increased uh, capital invested in infrastructure through the private sector, uh, working through the IIJA and the IRA, because our infrastructure gets like the worst grades uh, for that, that this country's ever had. I mean, the fact that we have allowed it to get to this place is uh, somewhat embarrassing, but I think we will begin to see improvements in infrastructure, assuming that the efficiency picks up in terms of the agencies that are responsible for setting the terms for release of funds under the IRA and the IIJA. So there's a, there's a learning curve that's happening in terms of infrastructure. Uh, both with the government, but it's also with the private sector as they figure out how to navigate the sort of Republican private need, whether it's a P3 or something else, but they those two different sectors learn to work together. But we're going to see it in terms of um, uh, things that affect 
uh, defense, which would include cyber. Uh, we mentioned chips. Um, it's going to mean we're going to be dealing with supply chain issues and things that are important for defense uh, that create vulnerability if we don't have it. And if you think back to COVID how many things that we didn't have access to in the U.S. because we didn't make in the U.S. Um, and we didn't have control over. So we had, you know, multiple layers of supply chain issues, starting with everything from protected gear uh, for doctors and healthcare workers to masks and, and any number of uh, specific drugs. So I think that the wake-up call for COVID basically caused us to take a look at, at supply chain. But Americans are very focused on that. They're focused on access to medicines that they need. And those are also things that are under change, under change because you can see from the Medicare uh, perspective and the government's influence on how they're dealing with drug pricing. But that's also part of making sure the drugs that the aging population needs are available. People are going to appreciate and recognize that. Um, the other place where I think folks are going to recognize the fact that, you know, we're not going to have as much um, foreign goods coming in on those things that I would call essential. That's my word, not anybody else's, but essential to the, the operations of the U.S., the things that keep the lights on, uh, the things that deliver services. Uh, and we can start with chips and then move on out to, you know, a number of minerals that we need that we had not been uh, very fast on the uptake to produce. Uh, and I think that we're going to see the policies focused on sort of what's happening on the global stage in terms of people beginning to look inward to make sure that their house is in order if there's um, additional disruption in terms of the global economy. Yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, quite interesting and, it, you know, simplified view here, you know, we're talking about revitalizing onshore manufacturing to a modest extent in the United States, which is, which is great. There's a lot to be gained for um, the American economy at the macro level, you know, taking on an initiative like this. But on the other hand, as this article points out, it's necessarily going to bake in a certain amount of inflation coming at a time where inflation is, um, it's a major threat uh, to, to to our economy and society and, and way of life. Um, did you agree with the article's assertion? And, and if so, could you unpack it a little bit for us? Yeah, I, I, I agree with it, but I think it may be a bit overstated. Um, I think that the, the essential part of this is the reason we're going to have inflation is because the government's going to have to create enough carrots to get the private sector to do the things that need to be done here that were outsourced to other countries because it was cheaper. But I think that you'd have to weigh that against what those items are in terms of our needs for those items and the risk we may not be able to buy them on the global market. And I think that it's probably going to, inflation part is going to balance itself out when the economy has a chance to stabilize because of the number of jobs that are going to be created as we bring some of this industry and production back to the U.S. But I also would add that anybody that wants to make predictions about the economy probably should caveat them to the maximum amount because we're living in times that haven't, you know, we've never been through anything like this before. And we certainly haven't seen an economy that's set up. I mean, there's parts of this that look like the 1980s in terms of buying houses now is as expensive as it was in 1982. 
And whoever thought we would go back to that or the interest rates uh, in an effort to temper uh, inflation, there's just so many unknowns uh, in terms of how we got to where we are, why we're here, and where we're going. So I'm not sure that inflation would be my number one concern. My number one concern is that we don't get the government and the private sector moving in the right direction quickly enough uh, to diversify because the it takes time to bring these things back to the U.S., like solar panel manufacturing, chips, uh, minerals, those things, it all takes time to, to do that and, and uh, to get the industry in the U.S. up and operating. And meanwhile, we have to manage the risk that we won't be able to uh, we won't be able to purchase as much of whatever it is we need on the uh, global market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> regulators have their work cut out for them, uh, I think, the next couple of years here. It's hard to recall a time in history where uh, there have been so many cross currents and so many, uh, you know, red blinking lights, so to speak, on the dashboard. Um, Looking at the way financial media has kind of been back and forth between the idea in recent months that that the world is falling apart, rates are going to the moon, and and we're going to stumble into a hard landing recession balanced against the notion that there's kind of all this money sitting on the sidelines just waiting to come in and rev the capital markets machine back up and everything is just a giant bull run and you know onwards and upwards forever uh, i look at something like this story and wonder what if we just muddle along in the middle for the next couple of years some parts of the economy will grow others will struggle the reasons for this policy push climate change and competition from china are going to displace and harm some companies but also open up doors for others the hopefully thoughtful investments in these in these new policies you would think are going to foster some growth despite the inflationary pressures um, they, 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 they can bring up. But um, it's not exactly a tsunami. It, it, the restructuring space should do pretty well in an, in an environment, I think, like this going forward. How does it strike you? I think you're right. I think the restructuring space is going to be uh, quite busy, uh, maybe not in the same way that we have been busy in the past, I'm not so sure that, I think that, first of all, let me reframe that. We are going to see an increase in bankruptcy filings uh, for the companies and the companies that are, you know, over-levered and can't afford the interest rates and probably should have been put down long before COVID. All of that's going to get cleaned out, I would say, in the next year, year and a half without question because they can't refinance at rates they can afford to manage in terms of cash flow so there will be an increase there but i think the other thing we're seeing is much more subtle is that we're seeing the restructuring go on on a out of court uh sort of corporate and and in some circumstances very confidential basis uh and i think that that's going to be the sort of knock-on effect of you know we can call it industrial policy or whatever there will be huge opportunities in terms of economic development in terms of industrial diversification, meaning that there'll be more things made in the U.S., more government invested coming in to, uh, you know, promote uh, whatever it is we need in the industrial base that we're missing. Technological innovation is going to be one of those things that's both a, a negative and a positive, but ultimately I think it's going to be positive 
but there is going to be job loss as part of you know the innovation as things like AI get implemented into the day-to-day work streams of corporates and even professional farms. So I think that the the thing one has to look at is that with all these moving parts, you have to look at both sides of the picture. Yeah, there's going to be some uh, some losers, some folks that aren't going to be able to adapt or don't see the opportunity, and there's going to be some folks that are going to do very well because they recognize the opportunity and they're able to navigate what I call the government's carrots uh, to take advantage of the policy and you know move forward in, in whatever sector uh, we're, t- we're trying to uh, regain our footprint on. Mm. Looking at 2024 here, it's hard to believe we're coming up on the end of, end of the year here. Um, what industries or sectors are you looking at in particular as uh, being uh, hot areas for restructuring and bankruptcy growth? I think we got we can't ignore real estate. I think we're going to have problems, and we already have significant problems in commercial real estate. Uh, and I think that that's going to continue, particularly in the the areas where we have cities that really haven't bounced back from COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. And I. Those restructures are going to be really complicated, uh, given the LLC structure and the fact that many of the LLCs, particularly ones in San Francisco, basically said, here the keys, we'll stipulate to a receiver and you get to go figure it out. Uh, I think we're going to have to come up with new tools and strategies to deal with uh, real estate that was you know, structured uh, with an LLC that's you know been securitized and and is you know basically being run by the special servicer uh so i think there's there's going to be a huge turnover in real estate and i think we're going to see more distressed real estate acquisition next year as opposed to real estate uh mm-hmm. bankruptcies uh, i think people are going to figure out unless there's a hook to get uh, companies or individuals involved in a project, there's really not much benefit to a bankruptcy filing. Uh, so I think we're going to see, you know, fire sales. Uh, I think it could look a lot like it did in the 80s when we fire sold everything uh, in Texas and in California when the, the savings and loans failed. Uh, it's that kind of magnitude, uh, particularly San Francisco and some of our other cities where we have um, office buildings that are empty and uh, hotels that aren't able to cash flow. So I think we're going to see see the, we used to call them the bottom dwellers, but I think that the, the guys that invest in distressed real estate are going to come back and figure out when the time is to buy these distressed projects and you're going to have turnover which is also yeah. going to turn over the valuations in a, in a number that I think uh, people would have found shocking a couple of years ago. Um, in talking to some of our distressed real estate investors, you know, turn around numbers like 40% wow. of what it was before COVID and what they might be willing to pay is something, you know, less than that. But I do think we're going to see an active uh, market in distressed commercial real estate and people that understand how to structure that and also looking at you know sort of making those projects cash flow and work for the new owners the bankruptcy lawyers are going to be deployed all over the place for that yeah i mean it was just spending a little bit of time with the papers for um the we work uh chapter 11 which filed in newark new jersey earlier in the week and 
I think mm-hmm. a lot of people in our space understood that this case was coming uh, for you know a pretty long time, but it was still shocking uh, to open up the file and look at some of the numbers in there. Um, just absolutely massive, massive case, and uh, it does lend the feeling that there 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 might be a little bit further to drop before we start to see buyers come off the sidelines in the in the CRE space. Well, you know, the the thing that I've told my, you know, I did a lot of distressed real estate work in California in the 90s. And I've told all my clients, I said, I think this is the best time to sit and wait. Uh, because next year, we're probably going to see the shoes drop even further uh, because it's not sustainable. People can't sustain office buildings that are at, you know, under 40% occupied. And the other interesting part in San Francisco is the volatility because for every two or three that's in deep trouble, we see leases being signed on others. So it's there's a lot of um, uncertainty in terms of how it's going to shake out. So I think our distressed investors were standing by, ready to go. There is a lot of backed up capital, but um, I don't think that the, we're quite ready. Uh, in terms that have enough information about how low the market's going to go, uh, for us to see that deal activity. So you, you've seen this movie before. I mean, you're active in the 80s when um, we were kind of facing a similar situation. What's that next um, catalyst in the near term that you're looking for? What's the other shoe to drop? What 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 should be at the forefront of people's minds here looking for well, this I mean, to stabilize? Given, given what I do now compared to just doing only sort of restructuring work, if you look at the global projects piece, the flip side of this is that we have a number of uh, public sector entities very interested in whether any of these real estate assets could be used to provide um, attainable housing, which includes workforce housing and the like. Um, if we're able to find a way to do that that makes sense, then you're going to see it flip into a different, uh, different use which is going to require some uh, flexibility in terms of regulations and and you know, uh, statutes, but if we're able to flip the use and we're able to bring the folks that are firefighters, our teachers, um, our nurses, if we're able to bring them back into these downtowns to occupy these buildings after they've been converted, then we're going to create a new basis for the economy. So I think that that is on everybody's mind um, in California is that how do we take these assets that we're sitting out here and are we able to convert any of them into uh, workforce housing because the need in San Francisco for workforce housing is acute. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a, there's a, we're not sure how it's going to shake out because like in many other things, in order to convert a building and there have been articles in the Wall Street and the New York Times about how hard it is and might be impossible to convert an office building into housing. The same is probably not true for hotels. And we've been converting hotels into single room occupancy for the homeless for years in California. So to take it one more step and figure out how to convert hotels into housing, you know, for the workforce and others, I think is, uh, you know, that that may be more viable. And I know that there are tons of folks trying to figure out how to do it. And we get asked a lot about what changes in the law or regulations are we going to need? And I was on a call yesterday where it was, you know, the fact that uh, you weren't going to be able to get uh, 
likely to get an exemption from a requirement that bedrooms have to have windows. And, um, you know, the, the question I have is, and I haven't talked to any contractors, like, okay, if that's, that's a, a red letter rule and we're never going to be able to move off of it, how much does it cost to put a window in an office <laughs> building? And the reason I'm, I asked that question is that as the um, president of our homeowners association, I live in a 24 uh, building, we're replacing the windows in these buildings and I'm beginning to understand the technology. So I don't understand how hard it would be uh, to, to take a look and figure out how to put windows. But we're going to have to, people are going to have to get more bendy than they are right now to take advantage of the alternative uses in this real estate. And I do think that's going to happen. Um, I think that we will see that and it will see a different kind of growth in the economy than what we had before. And I think the, the, the challenge San Francisco has had is waking up to the fact that it's not going back to what it was, but it is going to emerge as something different and probably viable and vibrant, but we're going to have to work the problem. A lot of challenges on the board for policymakers all around the country and all all at different levels. Just looking back at what we spoke about on this podcast, uh, they have their work cut out for them. That's for sure. Well, you know, I think the other thing that thing can be true of the, the to say of the, the the private sector, because the, the 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 thing that I have banged on about for years as a bankruptcy lawyer is that if the private sector would just talk and communicate with the the policymakers, things would probably work better because, and I'll give you an example, the broadband regulations that went in for expanding broadband uh, to communities that don't have it, what we call the broadband deserts, nobody consulted with the private sector as to whether the stuff they were putting in place under the BEAD program was going to work for the private sector and the people that were going to provide the financing. So one of the things that I think the lessons that we could learn if we learn lessons is to have the private sector kind of monitoring the things that, you know, they want to work on on their particular, you know, uh, sectors and opening up the conversation with politicians before we end up with policy that doesn't work. So the, the, that conversation needs to improve. And I can say that for the last 40 years, I've been saying that nobody's listening to me, but I think for now an environment where as we see the government continue to apply industrial policies to any number of areas that the private sector is going to realize that's an opportunity they should be taking advantage of and increase their communications with government. Any stuff. All right. All right. Carol, let's leave it there for now. Thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this. Oh, me too. I always enjoy talking about this kind of stuff. And thank you so much for letting me do your first podcast. That's Carol Dennison from law firm Squire Patton Boggs. And that is our show. Thank you to the good folks at ABI for letting me do this. And a special thank you to all the listeners out there for making it this far. If you'd like what you heard today, do us all a favor and hit that like or subscribe button. Or even better, send us a note with your comments. Tell us what you loved. Tell us what you hated. All input welcome. Again, I'm Lee Packett from ICR. Thanks for listening and see you next time.